Well, good morning. On page six of your bulletin, you can find the scripture reading and sermon outline and info there for you to follow along. We're in Hebrews 11 uh, one more time today. And so we've had sort of a series within a series, I guess you could say, here in Hebrews 11. And so it's a fascinating passage of scripture to look through, uh, describing for us the nature of gospel faith. And here, as we approach the end of this chapter, the author has uh, taken on a story, I think he realizes, that is much longer, much bigger and deeper than he has time or pen or paper to tell. And so he actually kind of begins to rush to the end to make his point here. And this is what we read this morning, beginning uh, with the first two verses of the chapter and then the end, starting at verse 30. He writes this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Lord, again, would you grant that we might see and hear and understand? Would you grant to us faith to believe your word? Strengthen our hearts, Lord, that we might follow after your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this week I read a uh, very controversial blog. I'm known to do that, I guess. Not to write them. I don't blog myself, but many people do. And I figure, why should I add to the blogginess of the world that's out there? But I do read them every now and then. And this week I read one that uh, is probably pretty controversial. And it's because the title was this. How Christian Radio Poisons Boys' Faith. It was interesting. The writer was suggesting, you know, that contemporary Christian music stations, radio stations, 
target a certain audience. They market themselves towards women, generally, is, is what he suggests, that they're aimed at women and at moms, and that you can tell that even by the, the slogan. There's kind of a common slogan of a number of different contemporary Christian music radio stations, and you've heard the slogan before. They, again and again, as you listen to those stations, if you do, you hear them say, safe for the whole family. Our radio station is safe for the whole family. And, of course, what they mean by that is you're not going to hear on our station any racy talk shows or any songs with lyrics that have suggestive suggestive notions of ideas that you as parents don't feel you're ready to talk with your kids about. We're not going to insert anything bad into your car for young ears. We are, as we say, safe for the whole family. And the writer suggests that that's actually poison for the faith of young boys. And he explained, he said, you know, a boy grows up hearing that as he sits in the car seat in mom's minivan going back and forth, running errands and spends hours listening to safe for the whole family and associates, of course, hearing about Jesus with that. And and then a boy grows up and he begins to associate Christianity with that car seat, that it's a really just a a boring and pedestrian device that's designed to protect little ones from harm. Safe for the whole family is Jesus, it says to him. But as he grows up, as a boy, he begins to crave and to be intrigued by risk and adventure, even danger. That's just what boys tend to want to do. They want to be involved in things that can be a little bit risky. And he begins to realize that that minivan Christianity just doesn't match his nature anymore, and so he leaves it behind. That's what the writer suggested. I don't know if that's true. I haven't seen any sociological studies on it. And as you can imagine, there were all kinds of dissenting responses to his blog, all kinds of people saying, that's crazy. You, you have no proof of that. That's, that's, that's a terrible thing to suggest or to say. I don't know if it's true or not, but I do know this truth. It is not safe to be a Christian. It is not safe to have gospel faith. It doesn't matter if you're a grown-up, a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a young child. It doesn't matter what age or stage of life you're in. It is simply not safe for anyone to have gospel faith and to proclaim it. Because of the world around you and because of your own soul and struggles, it's simply not safe Gospel faith leads inevitably to danger. I mean, how could it not? How could it not in a world that's postured so strongly against its maker? Inevitably, it's going to lead to danger. The Hebrew Christians knew that. They discovered it in the first century church in Rome, in the Roman Empire. These people knew that gospel faith was a treacherous place to be as they recognized the the impending persecutions of the civil authorities and the society around them, and they begin to wonder, maybe we need to do something different. Maybe we need to claim some other identity. This is what these Hebrew Christians were faced with. And the writer tells them that they need to remember how the ancient believers also faced a dangerous world. And so he gives them Hebrews 11. He says to them, remember All the ancients, remember them. Remember what they faced. They also faced trials and troubles and danger. And 
in our country, even despite the power politics in which Christians can so freely engage in this land even, the world is still a dangerous place for gospel faith. And in facing that danger, he says to us, at least by implication, that we wield a simple proclamation. And maybe it's just not enough in our moments of weakness. He says to us, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish. Now, in the eyes of the world, the one should not have happened, and maybe it didn't happen. And in the eyes of the world, the other one should not have been even a concern. Because in the eyes of the world, strongholds are strong, and human trafficking is just business. But gospel faith confronts such dangers with a simple proclamation. And in the eyes of the world, that proclamation is utter foolishness. Ever so briefly, he remembers Joshua and that famous story of the walls of Jericho. And he re- recounts that for his, his readers, his hearers in the Hebrew Christian church in Rome. And he reminds them of what happened. You know, the Israelites had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness under Moses' leadership. And then Moses died just short of the Jordan River. And Joshua began to lead them. And The Lord led them across the river. He parted the river as he had the sea so that they could cross the river unharmed into the promised land. But now they face the real danger, the taking over of the land. And God commanded Joshua something ridiculous, something foolish. He said to Joshua, okay, here's what you're going to do. The the biggest city that you now face is Jericho. It's a an enormous city of walls and fortifications. And I've given that city into your hands, but Joshua, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take seven priests with trumpets, and they're going to lead your men of war, and they're going to circle the city once a day for six days. I don't want your men to speak. No voices should be heard, only the priests playing their trumpets. You're going to circle the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, Joshua, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do the same thing, but you're going to do it seven times. You're going to circle the city seven times, Joshua. And then you're going to gather together, and the priests are going to blow their trumpets. And I want all the people to shout, Joshua, I've given Jericho into your hands. This is what you're going to do. You have to realize what great risk in the eyes of the world this plan was. I mean, imagine the the people of Jericho, they had known, they had heard of these people, the Israelites, coming their way, and they had feared them. But now they're marching around their city behind priests with trumpets, doing nothing, saying nothing but marching once a day for a week. You know, you can imagine by the third or the fourth day of the week, Kids are getting ready for school. Mom's making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And the kids are saying, hey, what are these these people are trying trumpets outside the walls? And by now, mom is just saying, I don't know these people. What what are they doing? They they have no plan. They're just marching around. They got trumpets. Well, maybe we shouldn't be so scared of them. You know, what if after all that preparation, they gathered together on the seventh day and blew the trumpets and shouted and nothing happened? What if nothing happened? A friend of mine 
uh, I, I've been exchanging emails with over the past couple of weeks. I emailed him to find out if there was a time that he and I could talk the next week about some question that I had. He's a pastor friend of mine, and he responded, and he said, you know, next week I can't, but the week after I can, so remind me, and we'll get together on the phone. The first week passed, and the second week came, this past week, and I emailed him back, and I said, hey, how about this week? Can we talk? And I didn't hear from him for a few days. And then on Friday morning, he emailed me back, and he said, oh, no, I'm so sorry, I forgot. I, I, I somehow just overlooked this, and I didn't get back to you. I apologize. How about next week? And I said, okay, next week would be fine. And, and then he said, you know, I, I think this weekend I'm going to have to really pray for wisdom. After all this buildup, you're going to expect me to have great answers for you. You know, what if after all the buildup in Jericho, nothing happened? But it did. It did happen. Something did happen. And one woman, because of her and her family too, was spared. And, and she, as broken as broken could be, the walls of Jericho fell flat. And by faith, Rahab did not perish, we're told. Now, Rahab was a perfect misfit, you know? because she was not male. She's the only woman mentioned in this list of Hebrews 11 on her own. Sarah was mentioned with Abraham, but Rahab's the only one mentioned alone. She was not male, and she was not moral. I mean, she was a prostitute, and she's not an Israelite. In all kinds of ways, she just doesn't fit with God's plan as man might have seen it. But it's just a picture of the fact that the kingdom of God was coming and it was expanding bigger and bigger as the gospel came, as the Lord expanded his people. Joshua had sent two spies <clears throat> into the city. You know the story. And Rahab hid them from the authorities who were searching for them. And she explained to them why she hid them. She said to them this. She said, I know the Lord has given you the land. And the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the people of the land melt away before you. We've heard of God's great deeds on your behalf. Indeed, she says, the Lord your God is the God. Have mercy on me. In all of her brokenness, they did have mercy on her. But it's intriguing for us to think about. I mean, really, she says, the people melt away in fear of you. Really? I mean, they're going to melt away because of an army that marches and blows trumpets and shouts? That's what they're, they're doing. It's, it's, it's a foolish way to proclaim against brokenness. Gospel faith wields a simple proclamation in the face of danger. And it is foolishness to the world. Benny Newton is a name you probably don't know. If you do, you've got a great memory. Benny Newton... Uh, was known as one of Los Angeles's forgotten angels in the 1992 riots in South Central L.A. In April of 1992, after the first verdict acquitting the police officers who had beaten Rodney King, riots broke out in Los Angeles. And some of you are not old enough to remember that, maybe. But riots broke out in Los Angeles and a truck driver was pulling, pulled out of his car and beaten near to death. And as he was being beaten, the helicopters of the television cameras were filming it live and broadcasting it. And Benny Newton saw it on his television, and he recognized the intersection. He said, that's near my house. And he rushed to the site to help this man. 
By the time he got there, the man was gone, but the crowd had turned its attention on another innocent bystander. And Newton, who was a bivocational pastor and an ex-convict himself, rushed into the crowd to help this other bystander, now Fidel Lopez, a man who was now being beaten within inches of his life. The crowd had pulled a knife on the man and were ready to do their own surgery on him. And Benny Newton rushed into the crowd, calling out to them, stop this. He he waded through the crowd. You have to stop this. And he laid down and covered the body of the man with his own body, taking the blows of the crowd on his own body, waving at them nothing but a Bible in his hand. The crowd eventually, just in disgust of this old pastor who was getting in their way, broke up and left. What could move a man to enter such a broken situation with such a foolish weapon? Gospel faith. I mean, the whole Joshua scene seems silly to us. Men of war marching around a fortified city blowing trumpets? I mean, it should just seem kind of silly to us, but it's really no more silly than us as a church confronting the brokenness of our own hearts with God's Word. It's really the same thing. It's the simple proclamation that we wield in a dangerous world. The the Apostle Paul said as much when he explained to the Corinthians, who were a difficult church for him. He said, I, Paul, myself entreat you, friends, by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they do have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, at that point in the coming of the kingdom of God, it wasn't concerned with the the stronghold walls of ancient cities so much as with the stronghold rock-hard hearts of people. Is what Paul was after. And it was in that very city, Corinth, where Paul had in his concern of, of opposition from the religious people of the city, had a dream and God spoke to him and said to him, Paul, don't be afraid, but what? Go on speaking, Paul. Go on speaking words because I have many people in the city, the Lord told him. And so Paul did. What are the weapons that we have? We have words. The kingdom of God has come, and so turn away from your sin and believe. Those are the words that we have. They're the weapons of grace. And they're not just for other ears, but they're for your own, even as you speak them to yourself. And so into the danger, we take that word to challenge even an unworthy world, the writer suggests to us here. In verse 32, he begins to get in a hurry. You know, he begins to rush through the rest of the passage. And, and he says, look, what more shall I say? I mean, time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and, and all these others, David and Samuel, the prophets. There are just too many of them for me to tell you about. But they all have one thing in common, he says. They were those of whom the world was not worthy. Now, they don't all look alike. He says, some of them challenged the world with great victories. He says, through faith they conquered kingdoms. Joshua did that. They enforced justice. Samson did that. They obtained promises and became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Sometimes we think of the Christian life as as having great victory, and certainly it does at times. And, And here are some tangible historical examples of it. But even in great victory... 
the men given examples were extremely weak characters. I mean, Samson. Who was Samson? He was demanding and impulsive. He had a weakness for women and a little bit of an anger problem. I mean, this was Samson. And here he is in this hall of faith, as we call it. Jephthah, you don't know about Jephthah unless you know your Old Testament really well because we don't tell children stories about Jephthah for good reason. This man was rash and boastful and foolish. He was one of the judges that God called to save Israel from the Ammonites, from one of their nasty neighbors. And God told Jephthah, I'm going to deliver Israel through you, Jephthah. Go to war. And Jephthah said, if God will do this through me, then I will make a sacrifice to God of the first thing that comes out of my house when I come home victorious. Well, you know where that's going to go. He came home victorious, and the first thing out of his house was his beloved only child, his daughter. And this rash and foolish man kept a foolish vow that was never asked of him and gave up his only daughter. This man, by faith, this man became mighty in war. And Gideon, I mean, you heard a bit of Gideon's story a while ago. He was Gideon. The angel of the Lord sought Gideon out as a judge, as a deliverer for God's people. And the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and said this. The angel said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, do you know where Gideon was when the angel said that to him? If you do, bonus points for you. Gideon was hiding from the Midianites in a wine press. This is the mighty man of valor that the angel came to find. And Gideon responded saying, please, Lord, listen, how can I save Israel? I mean, I'm from the weakest tribe and the weakest family of Israel, and I'm the weakest, the youngest, the smallest, the, the most useless of my family. Lord, how can I do this? Well, the angel was persuasive and got Gideon to agree and And then you know the other part of Gideon's story, don't you? You know, Gideon doubted what the angel was going to do. And he said, Lord, if you're going to deliver Israel through me, then will you just show me, I'm going to lay this fleece, this lamb's skin out. And and I want you to to put dew all over the ground, but not on that fleece. Let it be dry. The Lord did that. But still Gideon didn't believe. And so he did the same thing the next night. But just let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry around it. And that this is Gideon. This is the the wavering and weak judge that God used. And so the Lord whittled down his army from thousands to a few hundred and sent him off to chase the Midianites, thousands of soldiers, and they put them to flight. These are some of the great victories through which God says, I'm going to deliver my people through great victories, but I'm going to do it by weak men. Some of them, though, had narrow escapes. He tells us, through faith, they stopped the mouths of lions. You know who that is, right? Daniel. They quenched the power of fire. That'd be Daniel's friends. And they escaped the edge of the sword. Elijah and Elisha both did that as they fled from the nasty kings of Israel and the queens. They were made strong out of weakness. Some some women received back their dead by a resurrection. You know, Elijah and Elisha both raised the dead son of a widow. Both of them did that. Some of them challenged an unworthy world by their narrow escapes. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to King Nebuchadnezzar, who who insisted that they worship his golden idol, they said, listen, king, we're not going to worship your idol. You may throw us in the fire, 
but we're not going to worship your idol. We know that our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're going to finish the race well that we've started. And they refused. They were thrown in the fire, but unharmed. A narrow escape. Others had tragic ends. He says, through faith, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, as was Stephen, the first deacon in Acts 7. They were sawn in two, as as tradition has it, was Isaiah, the prophet. They were killed with the sword. But these were only, quote, tragic ends. We have those in quotes on purpose. You know, you know why, don't you? Because these who endured, well, didn't endure, who suffered these ends, knew through faith, they knew what lay beyond death. By gospel faith, they knew that life lay beyond death. And so these are only, quote, tragic ends. I mean, the Christian life is lived in the midst of an unworthy world. It's kind of like uh, an athletic contest played in the opponent's stadium. You know something about home field advantage, right? We all know what that, that idea is in our culture, in our world, home field advantage. What makes, up, what makes up home field advantage? In part, it's maybe the field that you play on. Maybe the home field players know the certain parts of the field where there are soft spots. I remember when I was a kid growing up watching basketball a lot and the old Boston Celtics and the old Boston Garden had home court advantage because they knew what spots on that old court were the dead spots where a ball wouldn't bounce well. And so the opponents didn't really know, but they knew, and they had home court advantage. Maybe you've taken a tour of Globe Life Park where the Rangers play. They didn't have much advantage of anything this year, but sometimes they do. And there, if you were to tour there, you would find that the Rangers locker room is this plush place, wood paneled with big screen TVs and all the amenities. And the visitor's locker room is a concrete and metal cage. That's home field advantage. And we all know the the feeling of that. And even more than the facilities, the crowd provides a home field advantage, doesn't it? The ones who cheer for you. The world is against you. It simply is against gospel faith. There is no home field advantage for us as Christians with gospel faith. It's not safe for the whole family. Home field advantage is not in your favor. But these endured, and they did so not separate from us. He says something in verse 39 that should catch our attention. He says, And all these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God wasn't finished. He says, because only with us would they be made perfect. And so gospel faith also looks to a perfect hero. In chapter 12, the very beginning, you you find one of the most enormous, monumental therefores in all of Scripture. That's an important word in the Bible. It always is, and here it's enormous. This word in chapter 12, verse 1, is the capstone of thousands of years of biblical history as this writer has now given it. The Hebrew Christians are facing great danger. They're they're facing life-threatening danger, and the writer encourages them, don't turn back. Listen, he gives all this Christology in the letter. He says, Jesus is greater than the angels. Friends, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than all the Old Testament worship forms. 
He is the very Son of God, and you need faith in Him to endure. Remember the ancients. By faith, by faith, by faith, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. It must have been an Olympic year. You know, maybe he, he in that Roman Empire, suggests the race metaphor, the Olympics, maybe on his mind, and he gives some important instructions. He says, let us also, as our predecessors did, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely because it slows you down. Alicia Montano is a five-time national champion track athlete in the 800 meters. The 800 meters is one of the most difficult races, the most taxing races in in track. It's half a mile. It's two laps around the track. She's a five-time national champion in this event. And last spring, she was competing in the U.S. Outdoor Championships in the 800 meters, which is not unusual for her as a national champion. What was unusual is on the day of the race, she was 34 weeks pregnant. Yes, she was, 34 weeks pregnant. But she kept running throughout her pregnancy, the athlete that she was, and healthy pregnancy that she had. And so she wanted to compete. As national champion, she was allowed to compete. And she said before the race, I just don't want to get lapped. It's a two-lap race. Now, the crowd cheered for her. I mean, you can imagine the scene. This, this woman, pregnant, 34 weeks, track athlete, you know, wearing the track uniform and racing around the track, carrying her load. Now, some of you men are thinking, I wish I could have raced her because I wouldn't have finished last. Now, maybe one, of, one or two of you maybe would have beat her, but most of you wouldn't. Two minutes and 32 seconds. That's all it took for her to run 800 meters, 34 weeks pregnant. No, you would not have beaten her. But she was slowed down. She was slowed down by a beautiful and wonderful thing, as beautiful and wonderful as it was. It was not made for endurance. It was not made for running fast. It was a weight that slowed her down. The writer says, look, just as though you were running a race pregnant. You're running this race burdened down by your own sins of choice. Lay them aside. Whatever they are, what are your, the things, that, that, that sensuality that demands instant gratification on your part? Lay it aside. Or that fear that makes you shrink back in the face of the world, lay it aside. Or, or the hesitations that cause others to doubt around you, lay it all aside and run But he says, don't just run. He says, look ahead. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, look ahead. God has lined the course with people who understand what you're doing. Okay, one of our kids did something recently that was very impressive to us. And and all of you who have kids, your kids do things that impress you constantly. They should. As a parent, you're impressed by your kids. But this was exceptional to me. One of our kids 
recently competed in a triathlon for the second time, second year in a row that this one has done this. And, and it's, it's fun for a parent to watch this kind of thing as your child grows. I did a couple of triathlons when I was in college, and I know they're hard. And in this kid's triathlon, they started one at a time because they don't swim in a lake. They swim in a, in a pool. You know, you swim, you ride bikes, and then you run. And they start in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and so they have to go single file through the pool to swim laps through the pool to get out and go to the bicycle. And so our child was at the end of the starting line because of his registration number, and so so many kids had started ahead of him. But he swam on through the swim and got out and hopped on the bike, and we went outside to see the bike circuit of two three-mile loops around the circuit, and we saw him whizzed by the first time, and he smiled at us, and he said, I passed 13 riders. And then he came around the second time, and he said, I passed 21 riders this time. And here he was racing around the track, and, and then he got onto the run, and the run is the hardest part because you've now swum, you've now ridden, and now you're going to run, and the run is the hardest part where you really begin to bog down and as he was coming to the end, approaching the finish line, everyone's there cheering, and, and there we are seeing him run, run by, and we're saying, you can do it. And I have to wonder, at that moment, as a racer is exhausted and nearing the end and hearing, you can do it, from mom and dad on the sidelines, that racer's got to be thinking this. You're sitting there in a folding chair with a cup of coffee. How do you know what I can do? I mean, isn't that true? I mean, I mean, what kind of encouragement is that coming from mom and dad at that moment? Much better, much better is to approach the finish line where all the kids ahead of you who you've not yet passed have finished, and now they're standing there with medals of participation and completion, standing there at the finish line, exhausted, sweat beating down their brow with a power drink in their hands, cheering you on, saying, you can do it. You see that, and you say, you know what you're talking about. And now I know. Now I know that, that I can. Listen, he says, we have such a great cloud of witnesses. And that word there is important, witnesses, martyrone. That's the word where we get our word martyr from. Martyrone, those who have witnessed, testified, and it's the same word as what we see as commended in the rest of chapter 11. In 11, verse 2, we read that God had commended the people of old through their faith, that God had witnessed or testified to them. And in verse 39, all of these, as he reviews them, all of these God commended through their faith. God had testified to them. And now he says in chapter 12, verse 2, they testify to God. They've finished the race. And they're standing there at the end. As we look ahead running, they're standing there saying, you can do it. They're not a parent with a cup of coffee in their hand. They're standing there with beads of sweat and blood and a medal around their neck having finished the course, knowing what is at the end. And they're saying to you, you can do it. They're testifying now to Jesus because he also has finished the race. After all, Jesus is the word that we're given as a simple proclamation. You know, we, we wield this simple proclamation before the danger of the world. He is the proclamation. 
And Jesus fulfills the challenge before an unworthy world as well. If you look back through those examples, he had a tragic end in quotes, didn't he? You know that. He also had his narrow escapes. I mean, how many times did he preach and teach to the point of offense with people who said, we now must throw this man off a cliff, but then he just walked right through the crowd and narrowly escaped. My time has not yet come. And he also, of course, had a great victory over not kingdoms, but over the kingdom of Satan. Jesus fulfills all those challenges, and he also is the perfect hero. You know, he says to us here, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And here are a couple of words that we need to know here. Founder is the word archegon in Greek. It's a word that means founder or pioneer or champion or hero. A champion in that ancient culture was someone like Goliath. You remember the story of David and Goliath and the Philistines threatening the Israelites at this impasse. There were two armies there waiting to see what would happen. And the Philistines sent their champion, the Bible tells us, Goliath, out to take on whoever would come and be the champion for Israel, the one who would take on the burden, the the representative who would take the heat for the people. He says, this is who Jesus is, our archegon, our champion, our hero. He's also the teleoton, the, the telos, the purpose, the one who fulfills and perfects the purpose is who he is. And so all the Christology of Hebrews that we've seen, don't you see who Jesus is, the writer says to his friends. He's the fulfillment of all of the old covenant. He's the one who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not just a religious inspiration. He's not just a parent sipping coffee on the side of the road. He is, rather, the one who has founded and perfected, the one who has fulfilled and finished. And he's surrounded by testifiers who by faith will tell you the same. Finish. Finish. You can do it. You may limp across the line, but finish. Now, I'm not sure if Christian radio does all the harm and danger to boys' faith as the blogger suggested that it does. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. I don't know. There are all kinds of reasons for men slowly, if ever, responding to the gospel. There are all kinds of reasons for that. But the reality is, gospel faith is not safe. It is foolish in the eyes of men as we address a broken world with nothing but a word from the one in whom we believe. And you will endure many different challenges in the face of this world which is not worthy of you and your gospel faith. But you have the perfect hero who has finished the course and who has fulfilled all that is required. And so, brothers and sisters, along with our Hebrew brothers and sisters, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel and run. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, would you grant that we might believe, would you give us faith to trust, and that we might run this race following after Jesus who has gone before us and for us. We pray in his name. Amen.